0: You're listening to the ShipBob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, ecom veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. welcome everyone to episode 11 of ship bob's moving forward web series uh thank you all for joining up oh, looks like ajay is here so i can invite him on stage now actually perfect In case you want to kind of go through a little giveaway as i'm getting uh all set here
1: perfect yes welcome everybody i know it's been uh, a tumultuous past couple of weeks and a couple of months so really appreciate you all taking the time to join us here again i see uh, a lot of uh A lot of similar faces and now we have ajay back in the room hey ajay good to see you good to see you guys apologies for being a few minutes late all good we're just uh kicking things off and then we'll we'll introduce you and jump into the mix so i I love it we've got so many people that have have been joining these lately they're already telling us where they're (laughs) dialing in from so as we always kick it off here drop in where you're where you're calling in from usually people are coming from all over the world i'm here in orange county so just south of los angeles Nick and Ajay, if you want to chime in as well, yeah,
0: I'm down in uh, the Raleigh, Durham area, so it's nice, and they uh, believe it's about 95 degrees and thunderstorms rolling around here, so can't complain, I guess.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm here on the East Coast in Boston, and beautiful uh, 80 degree day, so summer. Oh, really nice! I'm yeah, heading up to Boston great. this weekend. I was uh, I was born in Cape Cod. Oh, so, nice, awesome. Yeah, Thanks. I thought you
0: were based in uh, on the West Coast, so I, I wasn't too. Yeah, sure, I
2: but. I sort of split my time 50 50 between. Okay. Nice, but you know, these days with the pandemic, not a lot of plane flights. So, yep,
0: yep, yeah. So I'll be heading up there, you know, for the rest of the summer and just, like I said, hanging out on the Cape. Good for you, <laughs> man. That's great.
1: <laughs> I think I think it was last week I wore my TB12 shirt because they're a a proud ShipBob customer. And also, it's how I troll Nick. So I'm glad I'm I didn't hear it today because then... Well, know,
2: as, a, as a lifelong Pittsburgh Steeler fan, I can't root for the Patriots. But now that Tom Brady is with Tampa Bay, I can root for TV12. So
1: <laughs> this, is,
0: this, this session's not going my way, so I might just do myself for the rest of the time. People
1: are getting a glimpse into our internal meetings of us just trolling Nick. So here we go. People from so, see Chicago... We got quite a few people from Austin. Good to see that. Some some Italy. There we go. New York, LA, Puerto Rico, Babylon, uh, some Kentucky, UK. Love it. So again, welcome everybody. This is um, episode 11. We decided to postpone last week's episode with everything going on. Uh, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later. So you know, we're really excited to have uh, Ajay here with us. So Ajay is a partner over at Bain Capital. He also, a little while ago, was the SVP of sales and marketing at Trilogy, which I know this series is called Operators. And I really wanted to call that out because you know Ajay helped build them up to over $300 million a year annually. And he truly is an operator that got into the VC world. And he can talk a little bit about that later. I'm very fortunate to experience a lot of that firsthand as he is on our board over at ShipBob. I and mean, he's also on the board of or was at some of the most influential and innovative companies out there from Optimizely and SendGrid to those in the e-commerce space like Kiva Systems and Symphony Commerce and like I mentioned with, with ShipBob. So it's, it's great to have Ajay here. You know, as a board member, he really goes above and beyond and gets some of the weeds with us and helps us spot trends and do things probably 12 months before we, we might do it ourselves. And so, Ajay, great, great to have you here. Great to be here, Casey. Thanks for having me. And so a company I did not mention that I want to get into first is, is build.org. And as we mentioned in the emails, if you all saw, we'll be, we'll be donating $10 for everybody who comes here to build.org. And Ajay is um, not only on the board of directors at build.org, but he's, he's been serving that position for over a decade. So Ajay, if you could tell us a little bit about build.org and how you got involved in some of that.
2: You know, like all of you who are joining, I've had the benefit in my career of, of being part of several startups and entrepreneurial journeys, and and it, it really um, has changed my life. And And there's nothing, and I'm sure all of you can relate, I mean, there's nothing like creating something of your own, your own business, and, and starting with nothing and no resources and building it up, you know, from scratch. And and about 10 years ago, I got introduced to a social entrepreneur named Suzanne mckechnie Clark, who had started this organization called Build.org to help students in in tough neighborhoods disadvantaged students primarily students of color primarily black and hispanic where the dropout rates in high school were you know were in our extreme and introduced this idea that starting in ninth grade you would essentially get in parallel to your standard academic curriculum in in high school you would get a, a crash course on business and and how to start a business how to run a business write a business plan the the ninth grade class culminates in in our students presenting their business plan to panels of CEOs and and venture capitalists you know very much shark uh, shark tank style and they get a few hundred dollars to fund their business and you know these are businesses that you'd imagine you know high school kids starting you know t-shirt companies you know websites you know things that they sell to other members of of their local high school community or, or the broader community they live in and then in tenth and eleventh grade, they actually run the business. And we have a, a youth incubator where they work out of. And the requirement for Build is, in order to stay in the program, you got to uh, you show up to school. You got to show up to school. You got to stay engaged in school. And so we've been able to dramatically you know change the dropout rates. But the other part about Build that's really fascinating, and I think all of you can relate, is that a lot of these kids, you know, they don't find subjects like math and other things to be engaging, you know, in the standard curriculum. But when they come to Build and they realize They need to know math in order to calculate the profit and loss. That's really powerful. They've learned how to open up a bank account. Many of our students, their families have never had a bank account. And the notion of having a bank account, they need to organize as a team. Who's going to be the head of marketing? Who's going to be the head of manufacturing? Who's going to be the CEO? How do you operate as a team? Communication skills. You know, they have to get up on stage at a Harvard Business School and and present their business plan to, to judges. We have uh, uh, events a few times a year where they can sell their wares to members of the community. And I, I take my family every year at the holidays and, and the students you know, come up, shake my hand, you know, and give me the sales pitch. And so they learn incredible communication skills. And so the, the outcomes we've had at BUILD have been you know, dramatic. Our students, the vast majority, over 90% uh, percent end up graduating uh, high school and going on to a vocational or four-year college and it really is because they feel a sense of ownership around their businesses and the same journeys all of you are, are on with your brands and companies, our students are on that same journey with Build. So it's a, it's a terrific organization. There are a lot of great causes. You know, Our CEO Ayele Shakur you know, has been a, a really loud and vocal voice, particularly in this time period, on how you know, things like digital and online can, can bring access to the you know, equal kind of education to our inner city youth um, and disadvantaged youth uh, in, in in the country. So, you know, it's great cause. And if any of you are interested in learning more, you know, don't hesitate to reach out.
1: That's awesome. And, and I love how it's the learning by application. I know, you know, for myself, that was always nice. And you do see so many is with, you know, from the, the Shopify's and big commerce's of the world with econ platforms, if we're gonna stay in the e-commerce vein to what we're trying to do with ShipBob, the ability to build and launch a brand at such a young age, and you know, from the devices like your your phone, or your computer, which a lot of these kids are using all day, any day, uh, every day, anyways, is is off the charts. And to be able to incentive, have their quote unquote payment be that they need to attend school, just really driving a lot of you know that positive behavior. I, lo- I love hearing that, and so. Uh, i just wanted to also call out i really appreciate those of you that replied to nick's emails about this that said you wanted to further donate with us to bill.org as well so feel free to reach out to us you know my email is carmstrong at shipbub.com. i always drop it in the comments as well so please let me know and on that note you know we'll get something into more like the investing and fundraising and and the, the e-commerce side of it and again as i as we've done over the last couple of weeks you know, for whoever asks the most questions, we'll do some giveaways. So this week we'll give away a couple boxes of Verb Energy Bars. Another proud ShipBob customer. Yes. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. I, l- I love those bars. They're, They're great. So good, like protein bar meets caffeine. So it's like you it's can you feel bad drinking one cup of coffee, we well, you can have about five verb bars and then your productivity is off the charts and then avron i see you asked a question you said you wanted to chip up to fulfill products but some some of the product was too big we do oversize and heavyweight but there you know becomes a time where maybe it extends even past that again feel free to message me because we do have partners that can help help you there as well so don't don't hesitate to reach out so my first question and we've got a bunch of questions from the audience and i know that we'll get a bunch right now but to just getting started Uh, Ajay like for especially for these e-commerce brands are there numbers or metrics or like a singular number or metric that that these brands should really focus on in their earlier stages
2: you know as you as you think about the world of of creating you know consumer brands it's amazing how much has changed and and you know i think thanks to companies like magento big commerce and shopify you know the front end platforms are all off the shelf you can you know you don't need to build technology; it's all there, thanks to companies like ShipBob. Fulfillment is there, and and it's on demand, and you can get going. and And thanks to you know manufacturing now being on demand, you know overseas, you can get your product built you know really quickly and cheaply, and and without a lot of upfront money. And so the question then is, okay, how do you compete, and how do you build real competitive advantage? and You know, I think that the single most important thing we look for, you know, and this is not the only thing we look for, but the single most important thing we look for is do you have a product that some segment of customers or consumers really love? The barriers to entry to launch a brand have, have never been lower. That's good news, but it's also bad news because it means, you know, there are thousands and thousands of emerging brands competing for the attention of you know, each and every consumer. And so having something that someone loves and those consumers coming back, that repeat purchase, that repeat frequency, I think is you know, by far the, the single most important thing to create something that's really sustainable as a brand.
1: So, so a question that I actually was planning on asking a bit later, which I'll bring up now, because you did mention a brand that, that people love, and so I'll bring up Outdoor Voices, which I know my wife's a fan of. I have some of their their gear as well as they bridge into like men's apparel. You know, they were really like the darling, one of the darlings of the direct-to-consumer space. You know, they went through some pretty large fundraising rounds. And then, you know, some things came to light on their revenue, especially their revenue on a ratio to how much they've raised. So as brands, you know, think about fundraising and then look to others that are paraded through the mainstream media. How do you think that they should really approach, you know, what the, what the public narrative is and how to identify if VC is right for them?
2: You know, the challenge when you get bigger is how do you scale up without having to, to spend a lot of money on Google? Because as you scale up, you know, the interesting conundrum is that your cost of acquisition actually goes up, it doesn't come down. And so I think that creates challenges for businesses. And, and, and so this is why having that direct relationship to your customer, owning that loyalty, having ways to get to them you know, through your own channels, whether that's through your website, through your social channels, through SMS. You know, we've got a great company called Attentive Mobile that we've invested in that helps brands with, with SMS marketing uh, to their consumers you know, through email communication, but getting them back in a way where you don't have to spend that additional set of dollars on Google, and I think that is definitely the key. And and you know that may require you over time to expand your product portfolio, so you have more things to sell that that same customer. You know, it depends. Certain product lines lend themselves to repeat purchases, like the the energy bars and and things like that, or coffee, or a lot of you know consumable products. Other products like mattresses, you know, don't lend themselves to that, and and you may only buy a mattress you know once every ten years. So I think finding and really early on figuring out how are you gonna control your own destiny to acquire customers and not get addicted to the Google you know, search engine marketing treadmill because the cost will go up. Those keywords, there are finite number of those keywords. And as you keep bidding on more and more of them, your marginal cost is gonna increase. And I think this is what, you know, I think a lot of brands, including you know, Outdoor Voices and others, everything is working. You, know, you got the flywheel going, you're spending money on Google, people are coming in, but as you get bigger, and you've got more fixed costs to support, and those incremental costs get to be more expensive, that's when the math doesn't work. And so if you don't think about it early on, you'll be get to a size and scale where it'll be too late to try and solve that issue.
1: Perfect, I love it. And I'll, I'll repeat some of those. And I know Sean asked in one of the, the questions here, what are the most e- effective or efficient marketing campaigns for growth? And so just to reiterate some of Ajay's points. So that's something we think about a lot at, at, at ShipBob and, you know implore a lot of our customers to think about as well, so organic or s e o and that doesn't work for for every product. If you're selling mattresses, there's probably a lot of search volume. it can be highly competitive, but there's at least a search volume there. If you're selling some i don't know unique product that you more or less created from scratch and doesn't really exist, that might be a little bit more difficult. but then it goes to word of mouth and it's really getting your your customers to be your biggest brand advocates. Partnerships are pretty interesting. I know there's a few technologies out there that are starting to explore how can they s- help people scale and cross-sell across partner websites. Let's say even if you're just running on Shopify, how do you connect to others to so some of the partnership model the earned social media? And again, I know Facebook continues. I've been I've been on that end where I was running a site called Paleo Hacks for a while. And we had a huge Facebook group. And then Facebook cut organic like by 90% overnight. Fast forward 12 months later, they did it again. But social is pretty interesting. SMS, uh, that's a great point. It's actually been interesting to see a lot of brands remove chat from their website and really push people to SMS, which is very similar to chat. And everybody's on their phone all the time anyways. And then the repeat purchase, upsell, cross-sell. You mentioned the mattress brands as well, but it's interesting to see Casper and others get into things that people might buy more often, let's say like pillows or sheets or something like that. And I think that's
2: exactly why, you know, I think the challenge Casper's had as a public company is that frequency issue, which is you buy a mattress i don't know I can't remember the last time I bought a mattress every you know ten years every you know, maybe every time you move i don't know it's not that often, and so it's a one and done kind of situation, so you spend all this money, you acquire that customer, you've given Google and you know all these channels all this money, and then you make you make a little bit of money on that customer, and then they're done and so I think that's why you've seen Casper get into you know sleep technology and and pillows and sheets and you know this whole set of brand extensions so they can drive additional lifetime value around that particular customer but it's hard and you you know again I think you have to think about it early on you can't think about it after you go public you know which is unfortunately you know what the the, the challenges they're suffering
1: completely agree and then and then the last one I just wanted to call out was just as a lot of companies are thinking of the the media and content plays, Glossier is probably one of the best examples where it started as a blog and has turned into a hundred million dollar plus plus brand. And so, as people think, how can they continue to build? You know, what they owned and then you know sell their products through that. So,
2: yeah, and, and I think those are good examples. I mean, I think whether it's Goop dot com or you know Kylie Jenner or Glossier, if you own you know, you own the customer essentially through you know, either in the case of Glossy Content or in the case of Goop and and Kylie Jenner, their celebrity, that gives you a huge advantage. You know, if you've got to get your customer through Facebook and Google, you know, that's that's a a hard to sustain long-term proposition.
1: So some of the brands that are on here today, they might be doing, let's say a million a year, 10 million a year, 50 million a year, and some of them are just getting started. And so as they're thinking of fundraising, how do you view the differences between, let's say, approaching a seed round versus a series A round or B round? And maybe just give a little bit of background or definition on these for, for the audience as well.
2: You know, at some level, these names, seed, series A, series B, don't mean a whole lot other than essentially a chronology of, of your funding. And, and think of it as you raise a little bit of money early on to make, to take out, A couple risks you raise more money to take out some more risks and you raise even further money when a lot of the risks have been removed the point where you can access unlimited money is when the investors really believe if they give you a dollar you're going to turn into two dollars that you've got the whole machine and flywheel working and so you know our advice to all startups is you want to try and take the least amount that you sort of figure out the minimum you need to get to that next inflection point, that next point where you can say, okay, first thing, okay, you don't believe I have a product that people are going to love. Let me figure out the smallest amount of money I need to get a product out the door and show that I've got a product that people love. Okay. So you raise that money, you accomplish that. Great. Now it's like, all right, what's the next thing you need to overcome? Okay. Can I get, can I scale that? Can I get more people to go do that? Okay. Now I've shown I can go do that. And can I do that cost effectively? okay, now can I get them coming back? Can I build, really build, you know, my brand affinity, build loyalty, have people coming back, build out my email list and all of that, show I can drive repeat purchases. Okay, now I've done that. Okay, I need to expand my product line. Can I show that I can expand the product line? We have not only just one product, but we're now building out, you know, a, a set of products that, you know, allow us not only to drive repeat usage, but the average amount of household spending with our brand is going up. And so you just keep thinking through over time, how do you knock down each of those milestones and kind of raise enough money to get to the next milestone and not so much money that you're gonna scare off investors. Uh, and that's why you know, seed series A, series B sort of represent phases of a company and a phases of the journey. And therefore the amounts go up as you've proven more and more and you've taken more risk off the table.
1: So Sean has a couple of questions that he posted. One, one I want to talk, touch on first, which is how does one raise capital for a startup? And maybe another way to frame that as well is if somebody is a first-time founder or just getting started and likely cold emailing, which is something I've personally started to try to do a lot more just to keep pushing put myself in uncomfortable situations like is there like a cold email that stands out to you from a first time founder or or way that they were able to like highlight themselves or their product and really differentiate from, I'm sure, you know, the hundreds of emails you get every day?
2: Um, Not really, you know, I think it's very difficult to get, you know, uh, at least an institutional investors' attention through a cold email. And so I, I think that the way to think about it is early days when you have nothing, you're really going to people who know you and believe in you. And sometimes that's friends and family, Sometimes that's your business leaders in the community. Sometimes that's a former boss at your last job. That's typically where you get started. And it might be 10K, it might be 50K, it might be 100K that you cobble together. But usually, you know, for a first-time founder, the only people that are going to fund you, and and particularly when you don't have a product yet, the only people are going to fund you are people who know you and believe in you and, and have seen what you've done in other parts of your life. And then I think once you have a product, you know, you typically can go to seed investors in your local community. And, you know, there'll be certain seed investors, like I invest you know, exclusively in, in, in technology and software companies, but there are other investors that invest in brands and, and direct to consumer brands. And so finding seed investors in your, in your city, in your geography, in your country that are uh, focused on, on funding brands at the seed stage uh, and finding a way to get a connection. To one of them. Now, the beauty of running a business that's a D2C brand is any investor can buy a product and check it out and see if they like it themselves. But I think that's the way you got to go about it. I think if someone who's running a brand cold emailed me, I wouldn't respond because one, I don't invest in personally invest in, in D2C brands. I tend to invest in the technology that supports D2C brands, companies like, like ShipBob. So I'm, I'm certainly interested in it, but um you know i'm I'm not an investor there, and so that's just wasted time and effort because i'm I'm not qualified
1: to respond and I w- therefore I won't respond. And so another question from from Sean as well that I know has been getting i think I feel like uh, the discussions around it have been really picking up lately is is debt versus equity. And so if you just want to share a little bit on on your views on where you think it's maybe right for debt versus equity and some of the pros and cons there.
2: Yeah, I think to the extent you're funding uncertainty, meaning will the product work? Will it sell? Will customers buy it? Can we scale our business? Those are all uncertain things. I think you, you absolutely have to use equity and you probably can't get debt. And even if you do get debt, I think it's a, a mistake. I think debt is to fund known things. You know, I have hundred thousand dollars of inventory that's sitting in uh in a, in a warehouse, and I know that even on on the worst even even during a pandemic or the worst possible thing that could happen, I believe I could sell at least half that inventory overnight. well, that's a known thing, so you can go to a lender and say look i've you know you should be willing to lend me fifty thousand dollars because even worst case that inventory is worth fifty cents on the dollar, and so that's the way to think about equity and debt you know debt is to fund something that's known and uh it it
1: it really can help you with working capital and equities there to fund the unknown. Perfect. And here's a question from Steven. He leads it with self-serving question. And I want to call out that we welcome self-serving questions. That's why we're here. So ask the questions that you guys want to hear from from Ajay or from us. So please so, are you investing? And I think you kind of answered this already. Are you investing in companies that fit the criteria you described—fifteen to twenty million range, profitable, thriving despite COVID? Our bankers are reaching back out to equity investors.
2: You know, on the on the direct to consumer brands, we are we are. That's not an area of focus for us. Again, we we tend to focus more on the technology companies that that are the underpinnings, and we have a number of companies like ShipBob that would be you know, providing technology to businesses like yours, but we're, we're you know, not really uh, the right firm for a direct-to-consumer business.
1: And Stephen, with your question, again, feel free to email me directly. We're, we work pretty closely with a handful of the top D2C VCs out there, um, some of whom are co- coming on this, or future episodes of this. So again, Nick or I will drop my email in the, in the chat, you know, happy to check out what your business is doing and, and you to the right people there. So here's a question from from Paul, for, for these direct-to-consumer businesses disrupting traditional brand. Let's see, what is, there's a lot going on here. Okay, D2C businesses disrupted traditional brand counterparts over the last decade. Can you describe some of the DNA that really stands out to you for these emerging consumer brands or business models that you see disrupting e-com for this upcoming decade?
2: I think there's a lot of disruption left to happen. Uh,
1: you know, I think the pandemic
2: has proven that you know for for most things buying online is is easier more convenient is a better experience you know i think we've all gotten used to spending our sundays breaking down boxes of uh, various things that have shown up because we you know we can't physically you know many many parts of this country and certainly around the world we can't physically go to a retail store and so i think consumer behavior a lot of these behaviors are going to are are going to sustain post uh, the recovery and so i think that creates a lot of opportunity and so i think the real question if you're starting a business is to ask yourself what am i doing that is going to be hard for someone else to copy how do i build a unique advantage and you know i think the the companies that have been successful have you know, brought together a, a number of elements that have allowed them to win i mean dollar shape club you know, famously you know acquired customers through these hilarious videos that went viral and um, they were gen- the geniuses at it and uh, they had not just one they had several and so their cost of customer acquisition is really low particularly for a product where you had again maybe not in the pandemic when known shaving but pre-pandemic you know lots of frequency where people would buy it and so that, that's a that's a really creative way to go uh, do it you know other people win because they've got some product that's you know really innovative that you know, is, is hard hard to replicate exactly. Others win because they create a voice and a brand and a community and a sense of uh, belonging for a segment of of individuals. Uh, some people win because they find a segment of customers that's been underserved and, and going after that. And, you know, when folks like Amazon are going after kind of the mass market, there's so many underserved segments, you know, that are out there. I mean, I think about what Wayfair did In the early days of their business, you know, I remember meeting the founder and he said, Look, go on Amazon's site. How many mailboxes can you buy on Amazon? And you could buy like 10 different mailboxes. And he's like, Come to our site. How many mailboxes can you buy? And it was like 500 or 1,000 or 5,000, all kinds of mailboxes. And he said, The difference is we're not, we don't take the stuff in inventory. We, you know, we've designed a drop ship ship system from all these suppliers where they drop ship it directly to the customer, but we can now. Offer more inventory than Amazon can, particularly for these long-tail products. Now, Amazon has now added that same capability, but it was it was disruptive at the time and allowed uh, allowed them to succeed. We were we were small investors in Jet.com, and Jet's innovation was this idea that you know if you go to the third-party marketplace at at Amazon and let's say I want to buy two different things, it'll show me kind of the lowest lowest price. But the Amazon marketplace didn't factor in. Uh, the shipping cost. And it may turn out that there's a, a, a marketplace seller in Boston who's $10 more expensive than the cheapest provider who's in California. But when you factor in the shipping, and in fact, they have both items, as opposed to me getting two individual items from two different sellers, so they can put it in one box instead of two boxes, you know, being a split order, that when you factor in the total all-in cost, is actually cheaper you know, to get that order from the supplier here locally. That was a structural innovation that it was hard for Amazon, you know, just given the way their marketplace was designed to replicate and, and allow Jet to be able to offer, you know, prices that were, that were cheaper than Amazon's frankly. Um, and they added, you know, some other innovations like I don't need it tomorrow, I'm happy to have it in a week and the price is lower and, you know, all kinds of, you know, I'm willing to take a massive quantity instead of a smaller quantity, and the price is lower. You know, a bunch of things that, you know, Amazon, their model works, they're reluctant to change their website, they're reluctant to change their checkout flow and new player can, can you know, make some tweaks around that. You know, I mean, the reason we invested in ShipBob is we really believe fulfillment is a real differentiator. And, you know, that experience of someone getting their items on time, knowing where their items are, having that visibility, being able to deal with returns easily, and be able to repurchase easily. Again, if you go back to this idea of building that repeatability, building that brand loyalty, the fulfillment side, I think is, you know, an equally important you know, component here. So I think those are some of the factors and ways that you can create long-term competitive advantage. And it takes creativity, imagination, all the things that I'm sure many, many folks on this, on this call have in spades.
1: And I'm glad you called out Wayfair also, where, you know, they went head on with Amazon in an area that was tough for Amazon, it was these oversized and heavyweight products, which we talked about before, which also take up a bunch of warehousing space. And maybe they're doing the dropship models, so they're not having to like eat those costs. And so that's something that Amazon continues to get into more, but it's difficult, and it's it's almost like a completely different. It's, it's almost like a yeah, a completely different business on its own. And then, of course, like you said, taking care of that that entire fulfillment experience and everything there as well. I mean, our chief logistics officer came from Wayfair. And so he's seen the pros and cons of that and what makes it difficult and how they were able to focus solely on, on those types of products to be the best in class there where Amazon is, you know, covering the world with everything. But to just focus on, you know, these oversized and heavyweight products is a little bit different. And so... Speaking of home improvement products, here's a question from Bob. What about patented home improvement products, a continuous feed paintbrush and roller system? How do you posture this product for investors? And I'm actually going to add a little bit to that. So, you know, we've seen how Lowe's and Home Depot from, you know, when they IPO'd whenever that was 20, 30, 40 years ago and their growth. And even since COVID hit with home improvement products actually doing rather well. This relates to another question that I had for you. So if we were to simplify it, and maybe I'm missing some things here between the team, the product and like the TAM, how do you kind of break up what's what's important on like the, the handful of levers that people should focus on for their business? And then if they're like he says, if there is going to posture this product for investors.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I think you know, it's hard to generalize because every business is unique, but I think having something that is your edge in the marketplace. That could be product. That could be how you market and distribute. That could be your brand voice. That could be community. That could be some structural innovation around how you manufacture. It could be a structural advantage on how you go to market. I mean, Warby Parker, you know, this idea that you know, they send you five glasses and you get to try try on a bunch before before you order. You know, Zappos was innovative at the time saying, you could order, you know, unlimited number of shoes and unlimited amount of returns, and you had 365 days to return them. That was creating a, a real structural advantage, and then they're forced to figure out how to make the economics work given that structure. So there are a lot of ways you can create competitive advantage, and you know, and, and to the extent you've got a product that is highly differentiated, the hard part I think with products that are highly differentiated, like the home improvement one you described, is you know how do you simply explain it to the customer? I mean, this is where even though they're much maligned, I mean, infomercials have always served a real purpose because it's a way to demonstrate how this product works and why it's differentiated. And certainly now with, you know, the explosion of ads on, on mobile and YouTube, you know, you have more channels and, and certainly you have ways to, to test out an ad like that much cheaper than an infomercial, although infomercials historically have been very cheap because they're late night in the local, you know, geo. And so I think with a product like that, you gotta find a creative way to communicate, you know, why why it works the way it does. You know, I think infomercials are great like money back guarantee, no risk. You order and we'll throw in a couple of other things and I mean it feels like by the end of it you feel like it's a bargain. You know, you can't go wrong to get someone to try something they've never
1: tried before. So I'm glad you called up the infomercials too, because I think a lot of people think of just certain channels and that's marketing or sales channels as being too old school or not working anymore. But there was a time when, you know, billboards got too expensive and then billboards blew up. I can speak firsthand here in yeah. Southern California. Every single billboard is like a cannabis or CBD or like vape ad and whether they should allow those or not is another question, but it's insane. Like these companies are obviously making money off of that. And then with the infomercials, I actually didn't realize how successful some of these channels could be until I joined ShipBob where things like Good Morning America or the Today Show and then on the infomercial side like QVC can drive insane amounts of volume. I'm talking tens of thousands of orders within like a 24-hour time period. And so... Just because it's not necessarily how you buy doesn't mean that it won't necessarily work and in, in work well for your audience. And so it's at least, you know, worth exploring and looking into and maybe talking to others that you see that may or may not be doing well, because sometimes they will open the books. Actually, here's a question from Nick. So, Nick, you're on here. Why don't you ask Ajay? I'm kind of curious
0: about that. Like, why... Walmart would acquire Jet. I mean, what was it back in, was it 2016, 2017 when they acquired it, correct me if I'm wrong. And then right recently they announced that they're gonna obviously dissolve it. I haven't actually read all the details of it, but I'm kind of curious of like, why they, why would they do that? Did they, was it not successful? Did it just, did they having more, um, they having more growth on their own e-commerce platform? Kind of just curious what your take is. Yeah,
2: um, you know, they so they bought, Walmart bought Jet for $3.3 billion. And, and the reason they bought Jet was the gap between Walmart and Amazon as related to the the online sales was widening. And Walmart realized that they had to create change faster and they had to catch up faster. And so the acquisition of Jet.com was not just the Jet website, but more importantly was the the team and the expertise, you know, world-class engineers around e-commerce, an incredible set of processes on, you know, how to manage a site, how to deal with inventory, you know, fulfillment, you know, they did it all in-house, but they you know they built in-house kind of a shipbob-like system. And and so I think Walmart got to the point where they created an integrated e-commerce division with two, two websites, a jet website and a Walmart.com website. But even the Walmart.com website was really run the way Jet was run. So it was almost like: let's take our existing e-commerce infrastructure and transport it over to Jet.com with two websites. And over time, it just made sense to consolidate it to one website You know, once all the learnings and processes and, and software got incorporated. So I think they view it as transformative. Um, if you look at Walmart's online growth post the JET acquisition, uh, even well before the COVID situation has been dramatic, it's been a step change. And I think, you know, they spent $3.3 billion I mean, the rest of it said that the market value that has, Walmart's increased as a result of their e-commerce sales you know, is in the order of, you know, 50 billion, you know, so I, I think it's a, it's been a home run for them.
1: I love this where usually, I mean, Ajay is very helpful in general, but usually I'm the one answering all the questions. And so here we get to learn from, from Ajay uh, for for this entire hour. So this is, this is great. So here, here's a question from, or actually more of like a statement from David. So, they raised capital through... Oh, no. Where was the other one? Somebody called out the basically the crowdfunding. And so that's another interesting example as well that people can test out, especially early on, where can you build a story and can you build a rabid fan base and build up that audience? And so actually, it's from so Steven. So once you have an audience, equity, crowdfunding can be an effective option. He said they raised over a million so far doing a small percent for equity. Um, we've seen people... Use crowdfunding rather well. Uh, we had Backblade on here uh, a couple weeks ago. They launched with a Kickstarter project, which then they morphed into an Indiegogo project. And now they're going to do, you know, into the eight figures this year. When five years ago, all it was is an idea on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So definitely another option as well. So here's a question from Sean. And again, I know there's not like a one size fits all to, to these questions but how quickly do VCs want a return? What percentage or, and how do you evaluate the, the return that you're looking for in an investment?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no fixed answer. You know, the more risk there is, the higher the return, uh, the less risk, the lower the return. And so, um, you know, it, think of it as a spectrum and think of it as, think of risk as, what are the odds you lose all your money? And for a brand new startup, the odds you lose your, all your money are really high. You know. 70%, 80%, 90%. And so if seven out of 10 aren't gonna work and are gonna be zeros, you know, those other three out of 10 need to be at least 10X uh, return in order to get a decent return overall. You know, as, you get, as, as company gets public, you know, the average return of you know, the stock market over the last decade is, I don't know, somewhere in the 10, 12%. So you're getting about a 10 to 12% return A year because the risk is is a lot lower. So you know we as a venture firm we aspire to have returns you know in the thirty to forty percent a year, and you know public stock markets ten percent a year, and then later stage growth equity maybe more like in the twenty you know in the twenty percent, and then treasury bills are earning zero percent. So you know it's just think of it as as one axis is risk and the other axis is return, and I'm I'm phrasing return in terms of an annualized rate of return so if, if you put a dollar in each year how much will i have at the end of that year compounded over some period of time and so th- and think of that as for early stage venture you know 30 40 50 percent irrs is what you want and for t-bills you know and and high risk and t-bills being zero risk but zero return and so you just have a nice graph that maps risk and return
1: And so similar, another question we got from the audience was, and maybe, and you kind of answered this, but from these important factors that you look at, you know, it it depends on the stage that you're coming in as well. But is it a return on investment, like just based off paper valuation? Is it actually like cash in hand? Like how do you guys evaluate and balance that? Because obviously there's a point where you want to put money in your pocket and also in your your LPs or where you guys are getting your money as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, Startups are hard. It's a long journey. We're patient capital. I mean, that's the benefit of uh, investing with an institutional firm versus individuals. Is we we have a long time horizon, and so most of our companies that we fund, you know, it's it's typically seven, eight, nine years um, before we see a return. You know, so it's it's a it's a long horizon investment vehicle. You know, stock market, I can buy and sell a stock. I can buy stock today, sell it. Like a nanosecond later, in our business, we invest in a company today, and we likely are not going to see the end of the journey for seven, eight, nine years. And so, you know, that that's how it works. You know, we've been investors in in ShipBob. I think now for this has been three years, and um, we think ShipBob will be a multi-billion-dollar revenue company. And so, we got we got a long road ahead of us.
1: Love that! Completely agree. So here's a question from some guy you may have heard of before, uh, Drew Saxena, our CEO. <laughs> so he chimed in. He says, "Thank you, you didn't, for doing." You didn't
2: tell me, Drew is going to be on here.
1: Man. <laughs> hey, Nick, boot him out. Yeah. Too much um, pressure. <laughs> get back to work. So he says, "Thanks for doing this." Of course, uh, after having done venture for several years, you've probably seen all types of companies. Any stories you can share of companies? which were debated internally as risky or hard investments that proved out to be otherwise.
2: You know, a really fun investment we made was Kiva Systems, which is a robotics company that, it was a a really innovative company that used robots to automate e-commerce warehouses. And, and, And the fundamental insight the founder Mick had was that, you know, in these big Amazon warehouses, the average fulfillment worker was spending Eighty to ninety percent of their time walking. You know, I decide I want you know sparkling water and a book, and the sparkling water is on one side of the warehouse, and the book is on the other side of a, a you know a million square foot warehouse. And so that worker, in order to fill, fulfill my orders, now spending all their time walking. And so mixed insight was, what if instead of having the worker go to the the inventory, what if you had the inventory come to the worker? And so he created this idea of inventory sitting on these mobile shelves, and then using you know, autonomous robots that would determine, okay, I want the sparkling water and I want, you know, I don't have a book handy, but I want this book. One robot would go off to fetch the shelf where the water was sitting on and another robot would go off and fetch the shelf with the book on and they'd bring both shelves directly to the worker. And so now I, as a pick worker, I'm not walking, I'm standing there, both shelves show up in front of my face. I pick the sparkling water, that robot Takes that shelf away, the next shelf comes in, and then I get the book. And so, at the time of the investment, um, you know, the company had no customers. It had a prototype that was operating in a small, um, you know, little uh, room in uh, in Burlington, Massachusetts. And so, we I uh, took my partners there to see it in action. It was cool. You know, the shelf would show up, and they had a little demo. where was a tablet, and you could put an order in for chips and You know this and that, and the shelf would come, and you pick it and scan it, and you know it was really cool. But we were like, man, you know, going from this to a million square foot warehouse, you know, will it work? Will these you know robots run amok? You know, shelves falling down. It it seemed like there were a million things that could go wrong in making this work. Um, You know, at the time, it was unclear how big e-commerce was going to be, how fast it was going to get adopted. We didn't know how big the market was going to be, and we debated that heavily, and add added complication for me as the partner who's leading that investment was the day of the investment committee. You know, my wife informed me that morning that she was giving birth to our second daughter, and so I had to participate
1: by phone uh, from from the hospital.
2: From the hospital, <laughs> yeah, from the hospital. Um, And I thought, okay, this is not ideal. But we ended up getting there. We got the partnership convinced, and it was one of these things where it took a while. The first couple of years, we were calling all these customers and, and and no one, everyone was like, this is cool. This is great. When you've got your first 10 customers aboard where I can go visit a warehouse where it's all working, sign me up, but I don't want to be the first one. And through um, one of my colleagues uh, at Bain Capital, we had a relationship with Staples and we were able to get to someone very senior, you know, the gentleman who ran all of, all of e-commerce distribution and, and just we begged and pleaded and we're like, just come see it come to Burlington see this thing in action. He came and saw it and he called me up and he said, We're going to be a customer. And it turned out Staples was our first customer. And when we finally got that first warehouse in Colorado up and running, I mean it was I can't even describe what it was like visiting that. And 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 that that's when the dominoes fell, Walgreens and Gap and Zara and all the other customers sort of down the line. And ultimately, you know, Amazon now owns that technology. But that was that was a really fun one because, you know, a lot of what we invest in soft our software companies, you can't see it, you can't touch it. You know, in Kiva's case, we could see it. That's also one of the things we love about, you know, ShipBob I still remember, you know, when we started spending time with Dhruv and, and Devay and being able to come out to the, where you know, the, the fulfillment center in Chicago and see what ShipBob had built, not just the warehouse itself, but more importantly, all the software, the processes, Everything was running so smoothly, and I I had the benefits of venture capitalist of having been in uh, warehouses before and having seen what a world class fulfillment center looks like. And here was this young startup at the time. You guys obviously are much bigger now and a very you know sizable company, but at the time, small startup and the software that you had built and the processes where the warehouse was running, you know, blew me away. Which is why we leaned into that investment.
1: So it's we're almost to the top of the hour somehow. So. As always really appreciate everybody joining here. I just have a couple more questions for Ajay, but I know there's a lot going on right now in the world. Plus you have your own businesses and family and and everything. So as always really appreciate you all taking the time. We'll be here every Wednesday, three o'clock Eastern time and probably the best news from nick he just mentioned that um he's got to rerun the numbers but it looks like we're at 1k for build.org so awesome um that's great thank yeah. you so
2: much everyone yeah thanks yeah. everyone
0: honestly like I, this is this is probably our highest attendance rate that we've had for one of these sessions so, um you know everyone thank you, you know, really so much and there's some other people that want to just donate themselves too so really cool to see um,
2: great that. really appreciate. i know it's a, a tough time in our country and it's great to see everyone come together
1: yeah and so last question we always ask everybody you know what's your what's your number one piece of advice right now for for entrepreneurs and those in the attendance I think
2: um my main advice is it's no longer possible to take a narrow view of capitalism you know i I think the winning companies in the future are going to take a more holistic view of capitalism and and you know that holistic view means you're creating value not just for your shareholders but for all the stakeholders you know those are your employees your community the city you live in um the broader set of uh ecosystem that you're benefiting from and i think the reason why that's important is when you think about this next generation you know uh sort of the next set of folks entering the workforce people in their 20s and, and early 30s this is becoming for that generation a really important criteria for where they want to work and the kind of culture they want to be a part of and, and and this is not a political statement regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on whether you're liberal or conservative democrat or republican it doesn't matter i think you can embrace this notion of thinking about all the stakeholders and building a company and a culture uh, that thinks about all the the stakeholders you know and and even the most diehard capitalist will recognize that it's in their self-interest in order to create the culture and recruit the talent that they want to recruit. So I think especially as we've seen um, the forces, you know, and and all the turmoil in our country right now in in the U.S. and I know a lot of support uh, from folks around the world for everything going on here. It's more important than ever for leaders like all of you to have a a more holistic uh, uh, view. And we as investors look for that as well. So that would be my one piece of advice.
1: Love it. Well, I'm not going to top that. So great way to sign off, especially it's very timely for right now. So Ajay, as always, great to hear from and learn from you and really appreciate you taking the time and again, everybody who who joined today. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thanks, guys. Great. Grateful to be here. Uh, nice to meet all of you. And uh, we, we certainly put our money where our mouth is. ShipBob's Sh- a, a fantastic company and our excitement on the business over the last three years has only grown. So hopefully many of you are customers, and if you're not, you know, definitely check it out. Perfect. Thanks. Bye everybody. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.